0: Good evening, and welcome to today's meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California. I am Carrie Curtis, a member of the club's um, Environment and Natural Resources member-led forum and your chair for today. We also welcome our listening audience on the radio and the Internet, and we invite everyone to, to visit us online at commonwealthclub.org. And now it is my pleasure to introduce our distinguished speaker. Gil Friend is president and CEO of Natural Logic Incorporated. He's a noted thought leader on sustainable business with more than 37 years of experience in business research and policy. His clients have included Agilent Technologies, Auberge Resorts, Coca-Cola, Dean Foods, Hewlett-Packard, Levi Strauss, Nike, Sun, and William Sonoma. He is a founding board member of the Sustainable Business Alliance and serves on the boards and advisory councils of too many organizations for me to name. He has written more than 100 articles, contributed chapters to several books, and is the author of The Truth About Green Business and the forthcoming Risk Fiduciary Responsibility and the Laws of Nature. He holds an MS in Systems Ecology from Antioch University, a Black Belt in Aikido, and is a seasoned practitioner of The Natural Step, a sustainability management program. Please join me in welcoming Gil Friend.
1: Thank you very much, Kerry, and thank you, everybody, for joining us tonight. It's great to see so many good friends and new friends here today. Uh, I'm going to talk about the truth about green business, uh, the title, as you know, of, of the book, and also the three key barriers to building a sustainable economy. Um, You know, it's easy to start a talk these days by quoting Charles Dickens. It's the best of times. It's the worst of times. And we don't need to go there in a whole lot of detail. I'm not going to talk about um, the article in Newsweek last week, uh, Newsweek science editor, who documented that every new scientific report on climate change for the past several years, every one is worse than the last. Um, Not going to talk about the prescriptions about Greenland ice shelf or the rise of demand and environmental impact from the BRIC countries. Or the hungry billion that go to sleep uh, uh, inadequately fed every day, or the miracle of clean tech investment. You all know about all that. I don't need to preach to you about that. Um, what you may not know is what we can do about all this. Uh, so, what I am going to talk about is the unprecedented, uh, unprecedented opportunity that I think we face today, both in terms of business opportunity and the opportunity of the human prospect on this planet. Um, but first, a few words of introduction. Uh, for me, the path started 37 years ago. Uh, summer out of uh, college, I spent a month uh, with, in southern Illinois, with Buckminster Fuller's organization. Um, Bucky had proposed something called the World Game as an experiment uh, in research and education to look at how do you make the world work. And we spent a month in a design charrette, is what it would be called today, looking in-depth across uh, uh, areas of interest ranging from energy and food to housing and health care, transportation and education, recreation and several other areas. In each of these, taking a whole system's view at where are we today as a planet? What's the current human condition? First of all, what's the preferred state in his terms? What would constitute success for us in each of those dimensions? And then, in a, I think, remarkable feat of leisure demand, uh, how did we get to the success from here? We actually reverse engineered the success pathway over several decades. And as you know, if you've ever tried to do a really difficult project or solve a maze, it's often easier to look at the solution from reverse then from here the impossibilities dissolve away and the striking takeaway there 37 years ago was that there is no necessary physical barrier to human success on this planet when you go into the nuts and bolts of the details and the analytics and the facts and the technologies in any one of those sectors there's no technical barrier and there's no resource barrier and that's where my course started i thought okay uh, this is this looks like a worthy mission for a lifetime to look at how do we guide and drive and accelerate this transition um, so ever since then, I've been doing this work. First, uh, out of out of that, with the Institute for Local Self Reliance in Washington D.C., which I co-founded in the early '70s, a think and do tank focused on urban ecological development, uh, working with the governor's office when Jerry Brown was governor of California in a think tank there called the Office of Appropriate Technology that was designed to innovate programs and spin them off to line state agencies. Um, a stint as a peace propagandist with Foundation for the Arts of Peace during the nuclear freeze years of the 1980s. And for the last uh, 19 years or so, I've been focusing on business, um, uh, 10 years as a sole proprietor, and for the last, now the 11th year, as CEO of Natural Logic, a strategy consulting firm, um, aimed at carrying the work that I've been trying to carry these, these many decades of reconnecting uh, ecology and economy, reconnecting the knowledge of home with the measure of home. So, Natural Logic um, is, as I said, a strategy firm. Uh, we advise businesses and governments on putting sustainability at the heart of the enterprise. What happens if that becomes the lens through which you look at everything? Uh, and we've done this with clients ranging from Coca-Cola to Hewlett-Packard, from Equal Exchange to Odwalla Juice, from the luxury spas of Auberge Resorts to the 15,000 buildings that the Department of General Services manages for us, the citizens of California. Uh, In all of these, the job is putting sustainability at the heart uh, to uncover the opportunities uh, and the hidden profits that are disclosed by nature's nearly four billion years of trial and error and innovation. And as we like to ask our clients, why reinvent the wheel when the research and development's already been done? So our work includes strategy and feedback and implementation, strategy helping companies chart their course, feedback helping them measure the results or the the progress that they're making, and implementation to embed these innovations and activities into the day-to-day work of the business. Because, frankly, uh, at the end of the day, no matter how profound or eloquent or inspiring a CEO is, if John and Mary don't do things differently Monday morning, In every ordinary default business decision they make, we're just blowing smoke, and blowing smoke is not what we need right now. The process of the work uh, often starts in a simple way with a strategic briefing with an executive team, helping leadership of a company understand the landscape of risk and opportunity that they're facing. Uh, But more than that, get at what their aspirations are, their their stated goals as a business, but the driving goals that drive them as people in that company. And then, obviously, we're looking at how to reconnect those. We'll start with the briefing. We'll move on, typically, to rapid diagnostics of of, uh, uh, operations and performance, uh, ranging from facilities to carbon footprint to metrics to capacity for change. And then, for those companies are ready, that are ready, we go into a full cycle sustainability process that takes them through the assessment and engagement, design of new strategies, mobilization of the organization, and monitoring and measurement of the results. And then, uh, of course, rinse and repeat as long as you care to go around the wheel. So that's the background. Let me talk a bit about some of what I've learned in the last 37 years of this work. Um, the book, The Truth About Green Business, uh, was an attempt to distill all that, to put all that between two covers and a couple of hundred pages. Uh, it's an impossible task, of course. Uh, but we tried hard to really get at what is salient, and at two levels. There is, uh, it's, an, it, it, it's an immensely practical book, and this is not my judgment. This is the surprise that I've seen. Every single review that we've seen on the book so far has had that word in it. So this is a stunningly practical nuts and bolts. And it's, I'm surprised because there's also a lot of theory in it. There's a lot of big picture. There's a lot of framework thinking because you need them both. You know, my friend Carter Schelling uh, taught me years ago that, that in theory, there's no difference between theory and practice. But in practice, there is. You know? And you need them both. If you have theory without practice, you know again, it's just that's just abstract talk. It's great, oh, you know, it's great at a bar over a beer, but it doesn't make a damn bit of difference in the world. If you have practice without theory, then you are at risk for having lots of futile atomized efforts that, in themselves, are good things, but don't add up to much in terms of momentum and direction. So the combination is key, and we've tried to put both of those in here. Uh, The market's in a very interesting place, different than it was, well, four years ago, the last time I spoke here. Um, we've seen a, a, a tipping point in sustainability. Four years ago, this was before General Electric declared eco-imagination. This was, this was before Walmart declared their sustainability program and told 65,000 suppliers, thou shalt get green. Um, this was before Katrina. Um, this was before a steady drumbeat of climate change news in every corner that you turn. Um, And so we've seen a growing momentum, and what are the drivers? People used to think the drivers were regulatory, and we don't think so. In fact, we advise our clients to ignore the regulations. Uh, We don't advise them to violate them, but we say, you know, tracking regulations or complying with regulations is no way to run a business. That's not where your strategic drivers need to come from. Do the right thing, run it in the right way, and you will comply as a side effect of being an effective and success, successfully run business. So regulations are a driver but not the key one. Climate is clearly front and center uh, in uh, for every business that we talk to these days in sector after sector, both the recognition that we are facing a potential world of hurt uh, as climate changes on this planet <coughs> with temperature rise and sea level rise, and if you look at the Bay Area as an example, Uh, The mid-range climate estimates for this century for the Bay Area put all of our airports, many of our hospitals, a lot of our key highways underwater, uh, take out half the Sierra snowpack, which is not about bad skiing, folks. It's about our water supply. And this is the mid-range estimate. Uh, And the the folks from the regional government organizations are very clear to say, look, this doesn't mean that our airports will be underwater because we're not going to let that happen. We can't as an advanced metropolitan area, what it means is that we're going to have to spend tens of billions of dollars that we never budgeted to protect things that we can't afford to lose. And so the economic consequences as well as the lifestyle consequences are huge. Uh, and so we see the phenomenon now of companies and in industry after industry uh, doing their carbon footprints, trying to get a sense of where their impact is, where in their supply chain are their most serious contributions to global warming and looking at what to do about it. The drivers are also from the customers and the supply chain. I mentioned the Walmart example before. In our work with HP some years ago, they said the major driver that was bringing them uh, into advanced uh, sustainability innovation was their European enterprise customers. Uh, Big companies in Europe buying tens of thousands of computers saying, we're not going to buy from you unless unless you clean the toxics out of this equipment, unless you increase the energy efficiency of this equipment, unless you recycle these products at end of life in an appropriate way. And uh, as you know, money talks, and that got their attention as it gets the attention of companies around the world. Uh, License to operate is a driver. Uh, Let me stay with the electronics industry example. Some of you may know that the European Union has been promulgating uh, environmental directives over the past uh, decade or two, In uh, uh, 2005, they uh, uh, initiated the WE directive, the Waste Electronics and Electrical Equipment Directive, that required electronic manufacturers to take back products at end of life and properly recycle them. Six weeks before that directive triggered, uh, uh, 44% of the global electronics industry was not prepared to comply. One-third of their revenues at risk. So we did a piece. We did an op-ed with... with, um, A couple of our colleagues for the Wall Street Journal suggesting that this was not just an environmental problem. This actually bordered on violation of fiduciary duty to shareholders. Uh, Management discretion is one thing, but being unprepared for the loss of access to one-third of your global markets uh, strikes me as a serious kind of irresponsibility and a kind of myopia that we unfortunately see in too many businesses. Uh, So there are questions of risk that are drivers as well and questions of operating margins that can be improved through efficiency. And increasingly, we're seeing that there's also, if you'll permit me the phrase, a natural logic uh, that is driving this as people increasingly pay attention to the reality that underlies the business, the ecological and resource reality, and start to scratch their heads and think, wait a minute, you know, maybe we really can't go on the way we've been doing. Maybe this is not just a tree hugger question, although there's nothing wrong with that. Maybe this is also a serious business question that goes to business viability and business success in the long term. So so with that as backdrop, what the book tries to get to is the how, of how do you think about and how do you do and how do you engage and operate in this new landscape. Uh, It's about business. Uh, As Jeff Immelt, the CEO of General Electric, said a couple of years ago, green is green. You know, he was describing General Electric's multi-billion-dollar eco-imagination program. He said this is a profitable program being done for business reasons. If we do this well, we'll make tens of billions of dollars doing it. Um, uh, it's about strategy. it's about charting your course and being clear on where you want to go, um, as well as how to get there. It's about feedback. It's about reading the signs because human beings, frankly do a lot better at performing and changing their direction when they have feedback on how well they're doing. Um, some of you have heard me say many times that J.M. Duron, who was one of the founders of Total Quality Management, said 61 years ago he said that to be in a state of self-control, people need three things. They need to know what's expected of them, their goals. They need to know what, they need to know how well they're doing in relation to those goals, their performance measures, and they need to know what resources they have available to do differently, if that's required. And Geron said, if any of these three things is lacking, then a person's not in a state of self-control and can't be held responsible. So show of hands real quickly. How many of you have all three of these in your organization? Yeah, this is what happens every time I ask this question. Uncomfortable laughter, a few hands go up. Never more than 5% of the room raises its hands. How many of you have two of the three? Well, a few more. How many of you have one of the three? If you have two, you have at least one. So, but, so keep your ha- if you had to, keep your hands up. Keep your hands up. So no, look around and notice and be scared. This is you know less than half the room, and this is what I see not only in audiences like this, but even within world-class companies. We don't have the conditions for people being responsible and people being in self-control, and yet we expect effective performance from them. So it's about feedback. It's about efficiency. It's about eliminating waste, not reducing waste, but eliminating, eliminating it completely um, You know, I had a long discussion, I guess discussion is the polite word for it, with an emeritus chemistry professor from a great American university some years ago who said, zero waste, this is crazy, you can't do it, it's thermodynamically impossible. You're wasting people's time even talking about that. And my response to that is, how does a chicken make a chicken? Where's the waste when a chicken makes a chicken? You know, it's not the eggshell, the eggshell is food. It's not the poop. The poop is food. I mean, everything becomes a nutrient for something else. There's no waste in that process. There's no waste when a forest evolves and succeeds into uh, in, 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 into a different stand of trees or if a grassland evolves into forest. There's no waste in those processes. So the question that we ask our clients is, are you prepared to be as smart as a chicken? Are you prepared to run your company as effectively as this creature does? Uh, so it's about efficiency. It's about facing reality. It's about understanding the metabolism metabolism of your company, the flows of energy and resources that flow through your systems, whether it's a, uh, a restaurant or a steel mill, uh, whether it's a government agency or a city or a school system or a household or a solar company. Uh, your company is structured and organized around the energy and materials that flow through it, that flow into it, and the products and the non-products that flow out of it. Non-product is the term of art that we prefer to use instead of the term waste, because waste implies a kind of inevitability, but non-product reminds you that these are materials that you've manufactured at the cost of energy and materials and labor and plant and equipment going in, and you ship out the door and you make no money on it. It doesn't help your customers. It doesn't help your shareholders. In fact, it costs you money to do it. So why would you do it? And the numbers are scary. For the United States as a whole, we're about 94% non-product, 6% product. 6%, that 6%, 80% of that is on the trash heap inside of six months. And so you have to ask yourself the question, not only, is this, you know, not only do you ask, is this a good environmental idea, but is this a good business idea? Why in the world would you invest all of that energy and materials and resource to produce stuff that adds no value to customers or shareholders? Uh, DuPont asked that question in the mid-1990s, and they decided as a company that their goal was going to be zero waste. In fact, they decided zero waste, zero defects, and zero injuries, And to the people who said, that's impossible, you can't possibly do that, the CFO of DuPont says, this is the best business decision we've ever made. Just one example, they got so good at reducing waste in their own facilities that they started providing advisory services to their supply chain uh, as a consulting service that last time I checked was a quarter of a billion dollar line of business. And it's a driver of innovation and inventing of new products and services which leads to the next point that it's really sustainability is really all about design it's about innovation in the face of constraints and understanding what those new constraints are it's not the lowest den- common denominator kind of compromise that we often see passing for design it's leadership that takes us into compromise it's not leadership it, it's not it's not compromise flowing from following from finding what what can people settle for that's going to be the least miserable for everybody in the gang but understanding what the constraints are and inventing new strategies that get us there, Wendell Berry said some years ago that the, it's the impeded stream that's the one that sings. It's the you know the burbling brook that has to pass over rocks. That's where the sound and the beauty comes from. And if you think about companies like Interface, uh, which has been driving waste <coughs> waste waste out of their systems for the past 15 years to the tune of hundreds of millions of dollars of savings, and inventing new ways of doing their business, no longer just selling carpeting, but leasing floor-covering services so they can deliver the same benefit to their customers with one-sixth the material, one-sixth the fossil fuels, one-sixth the waste, one-sixth the energy use, higher customer satisfaction, stickier customer relationship, more profit, more repeat customers. Uh, This is the kind of innovation that I'm talking about. Nike, uh, which pioneered the considered shoe line some years ago as an experiment to see how good could they get it, and they're now rolling the technology from considered out through the rest of the Nike line. Uh, Uh, Seventh generation you all know of as the cleaning products company Zeta, which Gary Gerber just told me about this morning, uh, building zero-energy homes here in the Bay Area, zero-energy, zero-fossil fuel. The the standards and the expectations are changing rapidly as these innovations come forward. Uh, It's about integration. It's about engaging everybody, bringing them in early early and talking about everything. The atomized by-department kind of innovation doesn't work. This takes knowledge that that breaks through boundaries. Uh, This takes knowledge that breaks through hierarchies. Uh, And so this is an example of going slow to go fast. Some people say we can't afford to involve everybody, and at at the beginning we have deadlines to meet, we're going to develop a plan and then take it out to them to say yay or nay. Well, that's not how you get buy-in, first of all, but it's also not how you get the best innovation because it's often the people on the front lines who have the eyes and ears and who have the face-to-customer and who understand the, uh, uh, in their own bodies what the impact of the chemistry, for example, that your company uses might be. When the IKEA hotel chain took their entire workforce through the National Step Program in the 1990s, uh, they were astonished to find that the people who had the most suggestions for the business were the chambermaids who, you know, in Europe, like in the United States, tend to be female, tend to be immigrant, tend to be low education, tend to be not highly regarded in the management hierarchy, but they were in the rooms every day. They smelled what the guests smelled. They handled the materials that the the guests handled, and they saw that once equipped with a few questions and a few distinctions and a few ideas they didn't have before, they were a goldmine of value to the company. So it's about integration, and it's about purpose. It's about asking the question of what are you really here to do? Uh, And I'll come back to that in just a moment. So if this is so compelling, you know, why don't we see more of this, even, even in the acceleration we're seeing now? And I think one of the problems is that there's a limiting assumption that's very common uh, across the world that we've seen. We see this from businesses. We see this from government. We see this from activists. Uh, we see an assumption that green's going to cost money or green's going to require some sacrifice of profits or green's going to require some delay of profits till some future payoff. And frankly, folks, it's not true. Um, it's more likely it's, – it's, it's not a matter that people can't afford green. It's more a matter that people can't count, uh, that we don't know how to do accounting and economics in a way that recognizes real value, that recognizes real rates of return, and that takes whole not, – not takes whole systems into, into account, but even the short-term uh, energy benefits. We see companies now that are passing up eight-month payback, eight-month payback on energy efficiency investments, which means they're basically deciding to spend more money in the next 12 months, not less, uh, because of this phenomenon of hurdle rates and economic decisions about how to deploy capital that, frankly, make no sense. You know, so the challenge is, 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 as innovators, is not to ask the question of, of can we do this? The question is, how can we do this? The imperative of what we need to do is clear. Um, When President Kennedy declared the Apollo mission In the early 1960s, saying we're going to take a man to the moon and bring him back alive inside of 10 years, NASA didn't say, can we do it? They didn't go back to the president of the United States and say, we can't do it. They said, let's figure out how. Uh, And, you know, of course, you know the rest on that. So, you know, so the challenges for us are, can we be as smart as a chicken, as I asked you before? Can we be as smart as a rattlesnake? Rattlesnake trades in highly toxic materials, Right, it's, it's 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 defined around the venom that will immobilize and kill an organism quickly. Do you ever see a rattlesnake hauling around a tanker truck full of venom, just in case it might need it? Does it have a remediation system? Does it have does it have clean? You know, a rattlesnake has pits in its head that synthesize venom microseconds before it's needed. That's injected into the prey, and if some of it is unused, it is safely dissociated at ambient temperature into safe constituents. Can we be a smart? As a rattlesnake, um, can we be as smart as a tree? You know, what does a tree do? Bill McDonough did an analysis, beautiful poster that some of you may have seen, identifying 60 different functions performed by a typical tree. It doesn't do one thing. When we design things, when we design industrial products or industrial processes, we tend to think about a narrow, simple purpose. In fact, they will teach you in business school to focus on a single purpose. But it's not how a tree works. It's multiple functions stacked in interaction with other organisms. Can we be as smart as an ecosystem? How do ecosystems operate? They run 100% on renewable energy. They have no waste. Uh, They have no persistent toxic materials. They're diverse, and they're decentralized. And all display something that we want to see in our own organizations, a phenomenon that Stafford Beer called autonomy in a coherent whole independent actors making their own decisions but operating in a way that shows up as coordinated and effective and efficient and resilient and adaptive. So there's a lesson for us there. So that's the good news. Let me say a bit about the bad news. I think there are three profound barriers that we face that stand in the way of not just enterprise success but stand in the way of building a sustainable economy. The first is is prices. It's the question of getting the prices right, right? Uh, This is something, frankly, I've been been, uh, burning a hole in my thinking since the work with Bucky in 1972. Um, We know from cybernetics and from history that command and control can't deliver the responsiveness that we need in an economy. We know from both cybernetics and Adam Smith, who said, uh, what, 225 years ago, said that perfect markets depend on perfect information. But we don't have perfect information. We have distorted information. We have prices that don't reflect the real costs of things. Um, you, you, you know, you, people call this environmental externalities, which is a, 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 a term of art from economics. It's a term of fiction that says as if these things are external to our lives and as if they don't matter. But, you know, they matter hugely. You think about gasoline. We pay now, what, 2 dollars 5 at the pump. We were very upset a, few, a year or two ago when it was $4 at the pump. Our European friends laugh at us, of course, for that. Uh, but according to research that we've seen, the, the the so-called external costs of gasoline are another 5 to $14. So if you were paying 10 to $20 a gallon at the pump for gasoline, would you be driving the car you're driving today? Would anybody even be selling the car that you're driving today? The costs are there, but they're not at the point of action. They're dispersed somewhere else out in society. But if they're at the point of action, we have the chance of making intelligent decisions. If we don't do that, then we're relegated to forever like Sisyphus, pushing the boulder uphill and having it roll back down again and pushing it uphill and having it roll back down again as we build regulations and rules and tariffs to kind of build boundaries around this stuff when the logic needs to be to bring it into the marketplace, into the price signal. Uh, Until we do that, we're, uh, we're really at a loss. The second challenge is the challenge of stuff. It's breaking the addiction to consumption that's at the heart of the way our economy is organized. Uh, some of you remember the debates over free trade, the, uh, the uh, global agreement on tariff and trade and the NAFTA treaty some, some years back. The point of those uh, uh, um, harmonization treaties, as they were called, was to remove all possible barriers to the maximization of the flow of stuff on the planet. Anything that would impede the extraction, refining, processing, sale, use, disposal, or movement of stuff was considered a barrier to trade as the sole value to determine anything. Uh, And this moved out of the way. And the challenge there, of course, is that the maximization of the flow of stuff, all other things being equal, means the maximization of environmental impacts. Move more stuff, you're using more energy. Move more stuff, you're having more climate impact. Move more stuff, you're having more ecosystem degradation. Which is all well and good in an economic model that depends on consumption, but as Ray Anderson and the folks at Interface are showing, no, there's ways to actually serve customers and make money, reducing the flow of stuff rather than increasing it. And you know, there's a metaphoric dimension to this too. We all identify ourselves these days as consumers. I don't know about you, but when I was a kid, we didn't call ourselves consumers, we called ourselves citizens, members of a community who engage in dialogue with each other about things they care about. Consumption, you know what consumption was 100 years ago? Tuberculosis. (laughs) Consumption was the disease that eats you out from the inside, and now it's our identification of who we want to be, and maybe there's another way to have value and prosperity. And the challenge for business is to invent ways to build economic success on less stuff, not more stuff. It's a profound challenge, and very few companies have taken that on successfully, but it's another of the big barriers. Third is the question of purpose, which I alluded to before. You know, you ask most people, what's the purpose of business? And they'll say the purpose of business is to maximize profit, right? Everybody knows that. The purpose of business is to maximize return to shareholders, right? Everybody knows that, except that it's not true. And don't take my word for it. I'm just an environmental consultant, uh, you know, uh, uh, with a point of view here. But Peter Drucker, who is the premier management consultant of the the 20th century, said this. A.P. Giannini, who founded the Bank of America in this city, 125 years ago, said this. He said the purpose of the bank is not to maximize return to shareholders. The purpose of the bank is to provide credit to immigrant communities in San Francisco who can't get it. And if we do that well, he said, we will make plenty of money. So it wasn't that that profit wasn't important, but profit wasn't the focus and profit wasn't the driver. Profit was the side effect. Profit was the consequence. Profit was the way of keeping score. The purpose of the bank was what the bank is there to do. You know, and everybody understands this. You know, none of you, I think, go to work in the morning and say, the purpose of my business is to pay the light bills to PG&E. You have to do it to stay in business. You have to pay your shareholders for the use of their capital To stay in business, but why would you think that the purpose of the business is to pay shareholders any more than the purpose of the business is to pay the utility company? Both of them are costs of doing business, aspects, side effects, consequences, measures, but the purpose is what you're there to do. So, in closing, I think all of this uh, calls to my mind three challenges for you and three questions that I want to ask you. And I know you have some questions coming from me, but let me go first. Uh, These are at the level of personal and at business and social and political. At the personal level, what are you really here to do? It's a question I first asked a client kind of unexpectedly to myself in a coaching session a few years ago, and she stopped dead in her tracks. And she said, what do you mean? And for once, I did this unusual thing for a consultant to do. I kept my mouth shut. I didn't say anything. And let her sit in the silence and she said, oh, you mean, you mean, what am I here to do in my job? And I kept my mouth shut and she said, oh, oh, what am I here to do in my family, my community, my life? Oh, and then a very interesting and completely different kind of conversation happened. So. This is a question, it's not, this is not a touchy-feely personal growth question only, although it certainly is that, but it's a serious business strategy question of what are you really here to do? What really is the purpose of your organization? What's the purpose of your role in it? Uh, you need to look to your heart as well as to your balance sheet for this. Um, the business question is how good are you willing to have it be? You know, are we looking at incremental improvements that slow the rate of damage? that have global warming be a little less bad than it was, that have a few fewer people die of hunger every day, that has things be, have things be not quite as bad as they were a year ago, or, you know, that reduces your waste by a couple of percent a year, is that good enough or is good enough something profound, 100% renewable, zero waste, no toxics, um, only sustainable products? Oh, my God, whoever would have thought that Walmart would put out a goal like that Uh, But they have, and that then becomes a challenge to every company in the country that does business with them. Uh, At the social and political level, will you put your money where your heart is? Um, Will you put your mouth where your money is? You know, every one of us votes every day. It's not just a matter of elections uh, every year, twice a year, every four years. It's not a matter of legislation and lobbying. We vote every time we slap a dollar on the counter, or a yen or a real or a deutschmark or a yuan or a franc. Whatever it is, we're voting all the time, every day. Are your votes consistent with what your beliefs are in every transaction you engage in? Um, And will you put your money where your mouth is because – will you put your mouth where your your money is because ultimately this comes down – the work of this work comes down to the conversations that we have with each other in our workplaces, uh, in our families, in our communities, in our gatherings like this. What do we say to each other? What do we ask of each other? What do we promise to each other? And that's where the work lives. And so my question to you is, what are you willing to do uh, in that regard as well? You know, will you escape with the, um, with the familiar dodge of, well, it's only business? You know, this is just what I do in my business. There's my other life where I'm a good, upstanding moral person. There's just this business part. I think that's getting pretty old. Most people know that. But uh, you still hear that. Still here, you know, nothing personal, nothing personal. It's only business. Uh, so, will you escape with that with that moral dodge? Will you escape with the intellectual laziness, frankly? Of well, we've always done it this way. Um, or will you embrace the personal and the business and the social and political challenge of inventing and delivering profitable, viable, and dare I say, joyful? pathways to a world that, in the words of Buckminster Fuller, a world that works for 100% of humanity in the shortest possible time through spontaneous cooperation without ecological offense or the disadvantage of anyone. Thank you.
0: I'd like to remind our listening audience and our Internet audience that you're you're listening to a program of the Commonwealth Club of California. Our speaker is Gil Friend. He is the author of the new book, um, The Truth About Green Business. Um, here's the, here's the, the, a question that one of our audience members would like me to ask, and, and that is uh, in your remarks you mentioned the moon landing. Mm-hmm. And so this audience member's question is, as specifically as you dare, what is the, quote, moon landing, close quotes, of this generation?
1: Well, I, I, I think it's the quote that I just shared with you from Bucky. Uh, in, in large scale and big picture, it's that. And the specific terms that we're, many of us are working in, it's transitioning a human economy from one that's sort of slapped onto living systems. Uh, to one that's integrated with living systems. It operates in harmony with the, lo- with, with, with the laws of nature. Uh, I think a lot of people don't like that phrase, but the fact is there are ways that things work here in the physical universe. You know, gravity's the law. It's not an opinion. Uh, you step out a 30-story 30 30 story window, nobody cares what your political beliefs are. You're going down. Well, the laws of thermodynamics are as much the laws as that, and so the sooner we can calibrate our economic lives, to the laws of nature, to the way that living systems work, the better off we're going to do and the closer we get to Bucky's aspiration. Thank you. Um,
0: There's two very related questions from the audience uh, having to do with Wall Street, I guess, you would say. So the first one, I'll I'll read them both. When when do you think Wall Street will get the type of accounting you're talking about, which I I think is the triple bottom line? Mm -hmm. And the second question is, your work is about changing clients' understanding of the existing financial and fiduciary bottom line. Do you think that addressing climate change globally requires work to change what institutions and the powerful regard as the bottom line
1: or to a new bottom line? Well, understanding the bottom line is key to this work. Uh, And, you know, my comments about getting the prices right and reflecting physical reality in the economic equation I think is part of the answer to that question. We're we're seeing gradual progress to that as we move toward a price on carbon, which is going to bring – carbon and climate impacts into the economic equation for more and more uh, companies and decision makers. But let me come back to the first question. When is Wall Street going to get it about this? This is actually a question uh, that I heard uh, Gary Pfeiffer, the former CEO, uh, former chief financial officer of DuPont speak to at a lunch a few years ago. Um, He said, I keep hearing this question from people. People keep asking me, why doesn't Wall Street get it about sustainability? And he said, you know, Wall Street gets it about sustainability just fine. I thought, that's surprising. I didn't expect to hear that. He said, he said, let me explain to you how. He said, Wall Street's looking for three things from us. They're looking for us to make more money. It's clear. Everybody understands that. They're looking for us to make more money faster because the net present value of a dollar today is worth more than a dollar two years or ten years from now. And they're looking for us to remove any risks that stand between us and making more money faster. So that's what Wall Street wants from us, and that's the framework for DuPont's sustainability initiatives. And by each one of those measures, everything we're doing is contributing to positive share value, to reduce risk, to accelerated profits, accelerated innovation. Um, And so from his perspective, Wall Street got it just fine. It was a real eye-opener for me. And I think it may not be the way that most Wall Streeters would have framed it, but it's the way that DuPont framed it as a clear fiduciary business strategy to reduce impact um, and improve benefit. Pfeiffer also said that this was a few years back. He said that in the the, the preceding number of years, uh, he said um, uh, DuPont had reduced its environmental impact by 340% and increased its share value by 60%. And could he prove that these two were correlated? No, he couldn't prove it. Any more than he could prove that this, a couple of billion dollars spent on marketing generated those particular sales. He so, said, no, he said, I can't prove that they're correlated, but I have no doubt. This is not Greenpeace talking. This is CFO of DuPont Corporation saying, I have no doubt that those are correlated. Thank you. Yeah, uh, in, my, in my day job as a professor, I'm, I'm helping
0: my university figure out how to add uh, sustainable <clears throat> management to the, to the business curriculum. And that ties in with this question from an audience member. Will you give some example of what real green jobs are? And and, and also at management level, what skills would a manager in today's
1: world uh, need to really help with this agenda? Well, green jobs, I think, is something we're in the process of defining, and people have lots of different definitions for them. Uh, you know, jobs that, that – contribute to the, sort of, to, to the goals that we've been talking about over the course of the past hour that, that improve energy efficiency, that reduce waste, reduce toxicity, uh, improve resilience, um, save resources. We hear, hear most commonly, I think, these days we hear talk about green jobs in relation to energy, energy efficiency, solar production. Um, the Green for All program here in Oakland, which is giving rise to Van Jones and the, and the Green Jobs Czar role in Washington, has focused a lot on that and on the, I think, wonderfully powerful idea to say these are jobs that can't be exported. You know, if we're going to green the buildings here in the United States, we don't get to ship the buildings to China and have them green there. It's jobs here, labor here, uh, implementation here. So I think that's part of the answer to your question. To the other point about executive training, I think the best thing I can say to you is just give you the filter that we use when we're looking for for senior people and leaders in our company. The ideal person is somebody who brings together experience in business or finance, uh, in engineering, and in biology or ecology. It's a tall order, and it's a rare combination, and we very rarely get all three, but we'll sometimes get two out of the three. We'll always look to have all of those on any team that we put together. But there's wisdom and perspective in each of those sectors that is critically important and very complementary. Uh, so if uh, the, the, the advice that I give to people who are entering a program of study is don't be narrowly disciplinary. Don't just follow down one track. Cross-fertilize that, at least with one of these others. It's actually, literature is a great thing, too. If you know how to write and communicate, this will serve you well, even if you're going to be an engineer. Here's a question from our audience. If we do
0: stop making stuff we don't need before convincing ourselves that GNP equals happiness, what's your best guess for what happens to the world economy?
1: I'm not worried about it because I don't think it's happening that quickly. Uh, b- but what we know is we, you know, the, I, I guess what your questioner is asking is if we all stopped buying everything today, what would happen to the economy would be – it would be in a mess, because we live in an economy that depends on that, jobs that depend on that. So it's not just a matter of personal action to say, I'm going to buy less stuff, but redesigning economic policy and economic systems, and at the micro-enterprise level, redesigning your company's strategy so that you can be more successful in a world of less stuff. How can you both innovate and lead and encourage and prosper as this transition makes its experimental uh, uh, forays? Thank you. Thank you. We have questions coming in from
0: our uh, live Internet audience, and here's one. From your groundwork with Buckminster Fuller 40 years ago, what new technology or methodology offers the most promise to achieve true sustainability for the planet in the coming decade?
1: Hmm. It's a big question. Well, let me, let me answer that by saying that technology is a very broad term. We think about it as the hardware of what we do, you know, the solar collectors, um, the composting machinery, uh, the water pumps, and so forth. And so there's a, there's, there, there's a vast array of things that are needed in that realm. But, you know, certainly things that reduce our energy footprint, reduce our fo- eliminate our fossil fuel footprint, move us into a renewable energy economy. That's where part of the answer is. But I think a lot of the technology is in the way we think, and the way we organize production, and the way we coordinate our activities. I served on Gavin Newsom's Clean Tech Advisory Panel a few years ago, and in the first several meetings, our job was to create a taxonomy of all the kinds of clean tech that the city would support. And I was really struck that everything on the list was a thing. In fact, it was a thing that was, uh, you know, that was patentable, that a VC could invent, in, invest in. And there was nothing wrong with any of them, but as you talked about uh, 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 solar collector technologies and glazing technologies and building coating technologies and so forth, there was no discussion about things like zoning and building orientation and transportation planning in a city and a whole host of things that are about pattern, not thing, that are not necessarily IP protectable but have profound impact on the quality of life in the city on the economics of a city, and those are kind of off the list. And I if, venture, if you go down to Sand Hill Road and talk to most VCs, they're not really on the list of where most of our investment focus is, uh, but it can have profound impact on not just quality of life but on the energy footprint of a city. I mean, think about it. You have a city where you have to drive in a car to get somewhere, think Los Angeles, or a city where you can ride public transportation, or a neighborhood where you can walk to work, um, which, all of which have energy impacts and climate impacts, but profound impacts on quality of life, on sociality, on community and relations between people. These are examples where we're not at all talking about sacrifice to achieve environmental benefits. So, you know, whenever you hear people talk about that, costing too much, requiring sacrifice, throw it out. This is about innovation and improvement. One of the things we say to our clients in in early discussions, we say, look, we, we guarantee you we will never recommend to you anything that will impact your profits negatively, never anything that will impact your quality, never anything that will impact customer relations, customer satisfaction, employee retention. You know, the whole notion of what do I have to trade out to get better environmental performance, we just throw that out, put it on the table, and hit it with hammers until it's dead in the first conversation because we're not going there. What we're going to is innovation that improves performance on every one of those measures. You talked about uh, – we, we've talked about
0: uh, if, if what would happen to the GNP if we all stopped uh, buying stuff we didn't need. Here's a related question. How would you bring ecosystem services into an
1: economic equation? Well, we're already seeing that happening. Uh, we're seeing uh, uh, efforts to, to give a price to carbon is one aspect of that. Ecosystemmarketplace.com is a resource you can go to that's supplying, l- developing ways to monetize things like water quality, monetize biodiversity. Um, the, the list goes on, and these are the early efforts, and it's complicated. Uh, it requires... Uh, a clarity of understanding of what the services are and what their benefits are, agreement on how to measure these, uh, willing customers who will pay for the benefits that will accrue to this. So it's a place of great experimentation and real interest because in the current model, uh, we will value what has a price to it. Therefore, in order to get somebody to value something, you need to put a price to it. Uh, and the price needs to be, just as in any other economic transaction, it's based on an agreement of what something is and what something's worth. So there's technical mechanisms that have to be built to do that, and there's a conversation and an understanding that has to be built and shared uh, to enable that to be adopted.
0: Thank you. Uh, another question from our Internet audience. You, you referred in your talk to uh, one of the barriers being uh, subsidies for resource extraction and, as being a, a barrier. Uh, what? How can we deal with that? How, how can
1: we... Uh... What can we do about that? I'm glad for the question because I don't think I mentioned subsidies specifically, but it's it, it, it's a very valid point because it's another way that we distort. In fairness, markets. The, the, the 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 questioner says you implied ah well that I did federal subsidies I did do that. for resource extraction and support are are a major barrier. So we have a highly distorted market. Uh, you know we have cheap gasoline at the pump because we subsidize it in a variety of ways. The subsidies to to the fossil fuel industry, to the nuclear industry, are vast. Uh, Hermann Scheer from the German Bundestag said here in San Francisco a couple of years back, uh, his estimate was that the global subsidy to the coal industry was on the order of $800 billion a year. Now, I don't know if that's the right number. I've seen estimates ranging from $200 billion to $800 billion, but let's say $200 billion. Let's. The, the market cap of the coal industry at the time, Scheer said that two years ago, was $155 billion. It's lower now like everybody's market cap is. So imagine you're running a business – And you have a division that you're operating, and it's it's taking a subsidy of $200 million a year, and the whole thing is only worth $150 million a year, what do you do? Yeah, man in the front row draws draws hand across neck. You, You shut it down. You take the loss. You write it down. You disperse the assets. It's a clear business decision. But here, with this industry that has massive dislocative effects, massive health and other kind of economic effects, We're pouring money down a rat hole year after year. So I approach this not as an environmentalist but a businessman. I say take the coal industry and shut it down. Take that $800 billion a year and use that to remediate all the mines and mountaintops, redevelop the communities, retrain all the workers, invest in renewables to replace the energy that's not coming from the coal, and you still get change back on your dollar. So, you know, so, so I, say, I say no more coal, but I, also, I say let's zero base the subsidies. Subsidies have a role. It's a, you know, it's a strategy for public investment and shared social goals. It's not that subsidies are bad in themselves, but we need to understand what the goals are, who benefits, who suffers, how we make the choices of the trade-offs that we have to face, and we have to revisit those choices as time goes on and not necessarily continue subsidies that might have been prudent 50 years ago but might not be the best use of public resources now. This, I think, is a challenge to the the environmental and sustainability movement as well because, frankly, almost every energy policy discussion that I sit in, one of the first things that people say is, let's have more subsidies for solar. And my response is, well, yeah, maybe. Maybe. Maybe that's not the place to start. Maybe the place to start is to reduce the subsidies for the bad things. Uh, Maybe the thing to do is to ask... Our lack of subsidies the barrier to further development. Is that the best place to inject public resources in order to get to the goal we want? I say let's step back a little bit and say what are we trying to accomplish, what's the best way to get there, and how do we do that best? But subsidization as we do it now, and frankly, pollution as we do it now is a public subsidy. Robert F. Kennedy, Jr. from NRDC, says pollution is a subsidy because what is it? It's companies putting their toxic materials out into the commons uh, without permission and without rent. Uh, Robert Vandenbosch from University of California some years ago, the late emeritus professor, uh, said this is a violation of property rights. For a company to put their chemistry in my body without a lease is criminal trespass, in his mind. Now, now you know, What's important about this is not just that these are cute phrases and cute ideas, but it opens up a whole new political landscape. Because here now you can start to see a possibility of the radical left and the radical right, of the environmental left and the libertarian right, finding that there's actually a common interest and a common logic, and maybe there's a new kind of constituency for a different kind of free market that protects the environment by respecting it and valuing it, uh, that brings price signals down to to, to the street and the shop floor and the counter so that independent actors in a more or less free economy can make more or less rational decisions. The problem now is that none of us has the ability to make rational decisions because the data that we have is just wrong, false and distorting. So the subsidy question, to come back to that, is the macroeconomic level of the micro-questions we've been talking about earlier. Uh, They have to be broken apart, and the way to break them apart is to ask the questions of who do they serve, what do they serve, why are they there. And this requires new political formations As we're already seeing around the energy and climate bill, Uh, I know for me when I was coming up, and I expect this is true of most of you, the, the political landscape was business on one side and environmentalists on the other side. And now the political landscape is some businesses on one side and other businesses on the other side. The fossil fuel industry has a particular point of view around energy strategy and climate change. The tech industry and the food industry and the hospitality industry have quite different perspectives because they have very different interests in the matter. And so finding where those common interests are and forging new alliances, often uncomfortably. You know, alliance, political alliances mean sometimes teaming with people who you don't like or teaming with people who you might disagree with on other issues, agree on some issues, disagree on other issues. Uh, it's uncomfortable, uh, but it's the way that change happens. And their opportunities are vast for this right now.
0: Several questions here, uh, two of them from our Internet audience, relate to the local level. And uh, two of these questions are, how much of what you're talking about relies on local governments creating and enforcing green laws? And where should pressure for green uh, developments in localities be placed? That's one question. The other is, how can we (coughs) convince city councils to keep industrial zones for green reindustrialization when developers wield so much influence,
1: well, let me try to take them in turn. Um, there, there, there are a number of things that are re- that are within the purview of city governments, and others that are not. Uh, cities have control over zoning, uh, over control over building permits. We've seen a number of cities who are fast tracking green building permits, providing an incentive for developers to go in that direction. Simple, not very expensive, and has a high high impact. Um, uh, Cities also do procurement. Mayor Newsom here is fond of talking about how hard is it to get policy to change in San Francisco. For some things, it's a stroke of a pen. Billion-dollar procurement budget, we will henceforth buy this rather than that, is a way of both shifting the profile for the city and sending a market signal out into the marketplace, into, into businesses that, uh, that, that serve those needs. Uh, it lets them scale up green production and offer better value to other customers. So cities have great power uh, in those areas. Tell me the second part again. Um, the second one is still have it there
0: uh, <laughs> uh, how, how how much uh, of what relies oh this
1: has to do with industrial zones for mm. green reindustrialization yeah, so you know this is a challenge uh, everywhere, um, competing uses for land and it's a, it, 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 it comes down to partly uh, an economic analysis that takes a broader set of values into account as we 've been talking about over the past hour. Um, you know, that looks at impacts not just in terms of narrow economic measures of tax base or jobs, uh, but multiplier effects in a community. Uh, um, but it also, um, it also requires a kind of a different kind of engagement. Uh, I live in Berkeley, uh, well known for very contentious development debates. Um, you know, good guys and bad guys, Uh, I love this, I hate this, no, you don't dare build that in my neighborhood, and on and on. But here's another example. Uh, My colleague Bill Reed describes a story some years ago of working with a a development in northeastern United States, a well-regarded school was going to expand uh, in its community, Um, sensitive development, ecologically thoughtful, but they found to their surprise that the NIMBYs were boiling up and people didn't want the expansion. Uh, Neighbors were starting to hire lawyers to bring lawsuits against neighbors. It was starting to get fairly ugly. Bill got brought in, and what he was able to do was to bring all the stakeholders together, the the school, the architects, the developers, the neighbors, the lawyers, the county zoning officials, um, the roads and highways people, the parks and rec people, anybody who who touched this in any way, got them all together in a room together and figuratively locked the doors for a couple of days and asked people, why are you in favor of this? Why are you opposed to this? And Folks would go around the room and give their reasons. And then for each answer that was given, he would ask, Well, why is that your position? And for each answer that was given, he would say, Well, why is that your position? It was, you know, some of you know this from Toyota. This is the five whys process that has been part of the heart and soul of the Toyota miracle over the past couple of decades. Peeling down from the stated position to the reason behind it, to the reason behind that, to ultimately a very personal feeling that lives behind it. And as he did that, cycle after cycle through this room of people who were you know, had lawyers strapped to their hips ready to go to war. <laughs> they found that after several cycles, everybody pretty much agreed on their aspirations for the community, on the values that they wanted to see in the community, the quality of life they wanted to have for their children, the measures by which they would assess whether those things were being met or not. And when that point was reached, Bill said, okay, now let's start talking about design. Now let's start talking about development. So instead of saying, here's this great development, take it or leave it, or fight and compromise, he said, let's be clear on what we want together and what do we share together. Now, how do we bring that to the table and bring that to pass. Now, what's interesting here, for the folks who want to come back to the numbers, this was a project that was already a leader in energy efficiency and water efficiency and sensitive land use. After this process, it was 40 to 50 percent more energy efficient than the original energy-efficient design, 40 to 50% more water-efficient than the originally water-efficient design. And the kicker is that a county that hadn't given a zoning variance in 10 years gave this project a zoning variance in a couple of months. So for the business-minded folks among you, think about the term time-to-market. What's it worth to a developer to have an approval in two months versus in 10 years? What's it worth to not go to court? And that's not just just an economic question. What's it worth to not go to court with your neighbors who your kids go to school with, who you see at the supermarket every day? What's the value? See, it's not all about numbers. What's the value of that being harmonious instead of acrimonious? So it's a great example of, of the opportunity to look at development and to look at the political process and to look at innovation in a really different way. Thank you. And a city, to your question, a city can convene that kind of process as a choice. Can do, can do the familiar process or it can do that kind of process. Um, I'd like to remind our listening audience and our Internet
0: audience that you're listening to a program of the Commonwealth Club of California. Our speaker is Gil Friend, author of the new book, um, The Truth About Green Business. We have time for two or three more questions. Uh, this is from our Internet audience. What can... People who understand and support your efforts but only have a few hours a week do to move, this, move things forward. This would apply to anybody, but
1: in particular, a self-underemployed person. <laughs> <laughs> well, depending on what your interests are, you can, you can intern with us. Uh, we have regular intern program where people come and work on specific projects and learn skills. Uh, you can volunteer with any a, a number of organizations that would welcome your help. Um, uh, whether businesses or nonprofits or public, uh, public or public organizations, there's a lot of work to be done, uh, and the economy is tight for everybody, and not everyone can hire the resources they need. So, if someone's got more time on their hands and has that inclination, there are many ways to plug in. And um, um,
0: another another question is that's at a very local level. What is the best way for small businesses to go green? It must be. Uh, overwhelming for someone who's running a small business wants to do the right thing, what does he or she do?
1: Um, Start anywhere. Start with what you're comfortable with. Um, Think about the big items. Uh, Reduce your energy use. Reduce your water use. Reduce your waste. Recycle your waste. Think about the transportation of your employees. Think about the footprint of your building. All those are places to start. Any one of them is fine. Um, start with what you know, with what your people are motivated about. We're blessed in this area. There are a a, a large number of public resources, green business programs in most of the Bay Area counties, uh, San Francisco Department of the Environment here in San Francisco, many places where free assistance is available for small businesses, um, many resources. My book, various other books, um, websites, greenbiz.com is one of many resources that provides uh, that that will take people to links that will give them checklists, toolkits, handbooks, uh, colleagues, friends and neighbors. Uh, so um, not, not knowing where to go no longer is the barrier. Um, picking where to start might be, but then, you know, just pick, pick anywhere. Start somewhere. It doesn't matter if it's the most effective place compared to the other choice. Start somewhere. And the real key is engage your people. Um, you'll find, I think this is true across the country, but it's certainly true in the Bay Area, is that in any organization, just about anybody working there cares about these issues has pent-up concerns and pent-up demand and probably pent-up ideas. Uh, So build a green team, ask for volunteers, engage people from around the organization to sit and talk together about what they think and what they care about and what's important to them and what have they seen um, that might be able to then roll out into the program for the company.
0: Thank you. And this leads to our last question. We've run out of time. Does a company or any organization that has a good story to tell about being uh, sustainable and green and having good, responsible business practices, does that company have an advantage in hiring
1: people? Can you hire better people? What is the employment market like? I think you could ask people in the room that question. I think the answer is, oh, yes. Oh, yes. That was Uh, supposed to be an easy question. Yeah, it's a real easy question. Uh, uh, You know, uh, uh, hiring and is is a huge issue and a huge cost for most companies. Retaining good employees is a huge issue and a huge cost. Uh, And we see again and again that the evidence is that uh, green makes sense here. Uh, The best and the brightest kids coming out of school want to work for responsible companies. It's part of their checklist. If a company doesn't have a credible uh, sustainability program, their recruiters feel it uh, on on the campus recruitment days. We've been hearing this for decades. Uh, You see it in your own work. Um, People increasingly uh, want meaningful work. People are increasingly not signing on for lifelong careers when they take their first job or their second job. Uh, The workforce is highly mobile. And so meaning as well as money needs to be there on the table. In fact, talk to your people about what they want, both the new hires and the existing hires, and find what what are the payoffs that people want from their workplace. And you may find that it's a real mix of benefits. It's not just money. Uh, or uh, other forms of economic compensation. It's meaning it's a chance to have an impact. It's a chance, sometimes a chance to work in a team in a way that's creative. And any company that can bring all those together and deliver them all here's integration again has a real leg, leg up in the marketplace and gets a better workforce that's going to deliver better business results.
0: Thank you. Our thanks to Gil Friend, uh, author of. Thank you. Gill is author of the new book, uh, The Truth About Green Business. This is a program of the Commonwealth Club of California. I'm Carrie Curtis, and now this p- program of the Commonwealth Club, observing its 106th year of enlightened discussion, is adjourned.